The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. George Hunzinger explains that our life in Christ is real and yet can't always be seen. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Dr. Hunsinger, thanks for being with us again today. Thank you. I'd like to go into uh, your book again, uh, How to Read Karl Barth, and co ask you to comment on something from page 124. Uh, Salvation is not a process eminent within us in any sense that we can observe or perceive directly from our own experience. And then further down, the truth of our being in Christ, as Bart understood it, is not only real and hidden, it is also yet to come. And then you go on to discuss how we're not only included in his being and in his humanity, in his history, in his transition from shameful death to glorious resurrection, in his transformation of the old creation into the new, we're also confronted by his being here and now as the real but hidden future of our own being, and so on. Now, could you comment on that? Yes, thanks. Well, last time, you remember, uh, I tried to begin by thinking about a particular verse from the New Testament, and, and I find it helpful to try to peg these uh, difficult and complicated theological ideas to certain verses from the New Testament. So I talked last time about 2 Corinthians 5.14, the first part uh, that one died for all, therefore all died, uh, as a way of suggesting those parts of the New Testament which seem to lift up some sort of universal hope. And uh, other verses uh, that I didn't mention we, we could cluster in, like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Uh, one of the most beloved verses in all of the New Testament, John 3.16, it's the world that's the object of God's love. And it's the world in 2 Corinthians 5 that is reconciled to God in Christ. So uh, part of uh, the genius of Barth's theology is to make those ideas more central to theological teaching than they have been uh, uh, by putting the, the verses that suggest some sort of ultimate division between the sheep and the goats, not excluding them, but, but capping them by this more inclusive uh, uh, hope. Well, th the verse that I think goes with the passages uh, you began with uh, out of my book is Colossians 3.3. And I learned to appreciate the significance of this verse from a comment that Karl Barth makes somewhere near the beginning of the church dogmatics. He says that this verse is decisive not just for Colossians but for the entire New Testament. Well, I had never thought about it that way before, but it turns out that yes, Colossians 3.3, if you watch for it, as I, as I have, uh, it's really important for Luther. It's really important for Calvin. It's really important for the Reformation. Colossians 3.3 says, you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. So there's that link in a way 
with uh, the verse we thought about before, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Again, people are, who are alive are spoken of and here addressed as those who have died. You know, so th there's some sense in which, by the grace of God, they have died because they are already included in the death of Christ. Uh, I mean, this is profoundly mysterious, but it, it's one of the ways in which throughout the New Testament that ordinary patterns of thought about time, where things happen one after another in sequence, I mean, that's all presupposed, it, it's never denied, but it's not the whole story. There's, there's a, another level, there, there's a higher level, there's another dimension. Uh, these, these sequences, I think, are real for God. But God's apprehension of time as we experience it is not limited to these sequences. And there's a sense in which, with, and, and this is mysterious and there's no way to, to really see how this can be the case, but that it's the case is what is affirmed. These sequences are seen by God somehow also as being simultaneous. And you get all that strange language in the New Testament about things having happened from before the foundation of the world. I mean, even in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, enter the kingdom that has been prepared to you, he says to the sheep, uh, from before the foundation of the world. Or in Ephesians 1, uh, we are elected in him from before the foundation of the world. And then that extraordinary verse in Revelation, Revelation 13, 8, uh, the Lamb being slain from before the foundation of the world. I mean, what, what's, what's being suggested here? What's being gestured at with this phrase? What kind of intuition? It's the intuition that time doesn't mean the same thing for God as it means for us, or it's not perceived, more, better, more precisely, not perceived by God in exactly the same way as it is for us. Things that are only sequential for us, are held together in a kind of simultaneity for God. I, I actually think, and this is sort of Bardian, I actually think there's a sense in which the last judgment, the cross of Christ and pre-temporal election, from one perspective, not every perspective, are not three different events. They're three different forms of one and the same event. So you get the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Or you get the last judgment occurring on Calvary, which is also a Johannine type affirmation. Well, Colossians 3.3 fits into this general pattern of uh, intuitions that you have died, you know, you're alive, but you, in, in this deeper sense, from God's standpoint, you, God sees you it's actually plural here, you know, but you know, each one individually also. You have died, and God sees you in and with the death of Christ as being included in it. And your life is hid with Christ in God. See, that, that hiddenness uh, is from our standpoint. You know, it's not hidden to God, but f f we, we don't see ourselves as having died. We, we don't grasp the full sense of that already. You know, what has taken place objectively by grace? I mean, first, 
we participate in Christ and his uh, obedience and his saving significance. We participate in him by grace, whether we know it or not. And then eventually, whether by faith or by sight or eventually both, uh, it becomes subjective. It becomes a matter of our direct apprehension. But for the time being, and the time between the times, as it's sometimes talked about in, in theology, between the already and the not yet, between what has already taken place in uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ uh, for the sake of the world. That's the already and the not yet when it is uh, fully revealed and fully actualized and fulfilled. We live in the time between the times, and there's a lot that's hidden to us here and now, but, but our true selves, our reality, is not what we see and apprehend uh, even by faith uh, directly. Uh, it's who we are in Christ, in God's sight. And God does not look upon us except as we are in him because he has embraced us by his grace in Christ already to begin with. So Colossians 3.3 has three aspects, it seems to me. Uh, our life is real, that means eternal life. Our life is real. It's hidden. We don't see it directly. I mean, we might get glimpses of it, but uh, I, th the, po the point about not having any direct apprehension of it, which, which you uh, quoted from what I wrote, uh, we don't know about that life and about our inclusion in it and about its really belonging to us on the basis of inferences that we can make about what we see in our own lives or, about, uh, or on the basis of judgments that we can make in our own case or anyone else's case. We know about it from the gospel. I mean, where else would you learn Colossians 3.3 except you have died uh, and your life is hid with Christ and God. This is proclaimed to us, and it's proclaimed to us uh, not necessarily because of the spiritual progress we might think we're making, but very often in spite of the progress that we're not making, you know, in spite of the setbacks and, and falls and uh, 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 you know, the, the, the disasters that we're making out of our lives. Uh, it's real, it's hidden, and it's yet to come. It, it's a matter of hope. Now, sometimes, in order to make this more intelligible, people will say, it's just a matter of hope. It's not yet real. But, but the way Bart reads that verse, and I think this is correct, it's already true in one sense. And it, it's yet to come as a matter of promise and fulfillment in another sense. And just because it's yet to come doesn't mean it's not already real. And just because it's hidden doesn't mean that it's not already real. We, we need those three aspects together, real, hidden, and yet to come. You have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. I, I think the same thing is true for Luther and Calvin when they're talking about our righteousness. You know, your righteousness is hid with Christ in God. You know, for Luther, the great summary of the gospel was, Christ is our righteousness and our life. But both of those are hid with Christ in God. So they're real, they're hidden. And that means we, we have to take it by faith and not expect to see too much or at least not, uh, not base our understanding of ourselves on what we can observe or judge about ourselves. I mean, that, that's the main thing. Uh, there's that hidden element 
but uh, it, it's still a promise that will be brought to its fulfillment either with us or against us uh, or both. I mean, grace, grace works against us as much as it works for us uh, and, and with us. I mean, it has to work against us insofar as we still remain uh, fallen and still remain uh, hostile to uh, the grace of God. Which is exactly why we need grace. Yes, and exactly how grace works. There's a great word, German word, trotzdem, which means in spite of everything. See, that's the Protestant word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, I am with you always until the end of the age. You know, I, I may have fallen uh, into sin. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful uh, human being. Uh, in and of myself, uh, I still remain a sinner. Uh, you know, baptism is supposed to have drowned the old Adam. And a joke that Bart liked to make is, it turns out the rascal can swim. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's a certain sense in which Adam is drowned in baptism, but in the time between the times, Adam is, is trying to pull us back under. And uh, uh, it's, it's a, a, a matter of uh, hiddenness and tension that sin and grace exist in us uh, in, in an ambiguous and complicated way until that final resolution. And doesn't that give us a sense of, of rest and peace with our uh, brokenness and our struggle with sin and so on to know that, um, that, that we have been made new in Christ already and that that is real even though we don't see it? I think that's exactly right. And you know, the, the objection coming out of the old Latin theology is, well, then uh, it doesn't matter what you do with your life or uh, there's no necessity for good works. Well, I mean, it's taking everything out of the realm of necessity and translating it into the realm of freedom. So I, I like to think of that uh, great hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And, you know, and I, I think that Charles Wesley was the greatest hymn writer in the English language. But Wesley said he would have, it's very moving to me, he would have given every hymn he had ever written if he could have written When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it says in there, and this is exactly right, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the transition from freedom to freedom. The free grace of God Love so amazing, so divine, eliciting the free response of total self-giving back to God. This is how much God has loved you. This is what God has done on your behalf. Look to Christ on the cross to see the depth of the love and grace and mercy of God. It's not what do you have to do. No, what do I have to do? What do you want to do? You know, it goes from the indicative to the imperative, whereas the, the, the other way is, if you do the right thing, you'll have a good outcome. It's, it's conditional. Whereas this is not putting uh, the, the indicative in the conclusion, it's putting it in the premise. The, this is what God has done for you, therefore act accordingly. Therefore make the proper response. And what response could there be but a life of total love and self-giving uh, to God in return? for uh, so great a love that God has bestowed on us.
Uh, going back to uh, an earlier comment in, in about the um, the universality of the inclusion of humanity in Christ, and the idea of of everyone participating in Christ because that's the nature of human existence uh, to be in Christ. How does that work? How does that look for someone who is not yet a believer? In other words, how does a, a non-believer participate in Christ? What does that look like? Well, there are no formulas, right? Uh, so that there's just there's no one way, and that's hidden. That's hid with Christ and God, I think. Uh, but, you know, Nietzsche, for example, said uh, one time, why don't the redeemed look more redeemed? You know, that's a pretty good question. Uh, and sometimes uh, people who are not redeemed look more like the redeemed than the redeemed do, and they set a standard that the redeemed would do pretty well uh, to live up to. So, I mean, sometimes... Uh, there are these incognito ways in which the grace of God seems to be at work. And uh, if we have this concept of the church militant, I mean, sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit is more militant than the church. And if the church is not ready to move, the Holy Spirit will move somewhere else. And then that, I, I think in general, that this is true of the whole enlightenment. There, there are ways in which the enlightenment has taught the church to be more truly the church. Uh, that was happening out of the church's own uh, uh, traditions. And now we can see uh, that uh, many of the things that the Enlightenment uh, stood for have their proper grounding at home in the gospel, and you know, the Enlightenment sometimes has trouble hanging on to them uh, indefinitely. But you know, there, there are ways in which uh, uh, grace is operative outside the church, and how do we know that? Well. We know it when it seems to be at least compatible with the gospel or, or uh, an expression of things that we wish the church were doing if the church isn't uh, doing it. Bonhoeffer uh, one time went to a, uh, a student evening. Karl Barth used to have gatherings of students in his home uh, from time to time, and they would uh, talk about some theological text or events of the day and you know it was open it was an open evening it was called and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who never had Bart formerly as a teacher was visiting and, and went there and he caught Bart's attention by quoting from Luther when Luther said uh, there are times when the curse of the godless is more pleasing to the ears of God than the hallelujahs of the pious so uh, I mean, the grace of God will work outside the walls of the church uh, in ways where uh, people who are not yet Christians will recognize injustices and try to do something about it or will raise a cry of uh, protest that also needs to be incorporated by uh, the people of God. And sometimes their piety is really a form of unbelief and a, a, a form of uh, uh, evading uh, the grace of God. You know, Bart also liked to say that uh, Christians go to church to make their last stand against God. That this, this is what was at stake in the idea that religion is sin. You know, religion 
becomes a form of self-justification. It becomes a way of defending ourselves against you know, the rather uh, threatening apprehension that we are sinners uh, deserving to be rejected by God, that God's uh, love uh, takes the form of wrath whenever it's resisted, whether in subtle ways or blatant ways, and certainly including religious ways. Uh, and uh, God doesn't compromise with sin. Uh, God doesn't uh, call sin good. Uh, God does not turn a blind eye toward it. You know, the, the, the wrath of God is a, a very important part of the gospel, but it's not split off from his love. It's the form that God's love takes. It's the wrath of God's love when God's love is resisted, and God's wrath overcomes all forms of resistance, but finally in such a way that uh, uh, the sin is removed and uh, uh, God's purposes are fulfilled even for the sinner in spite of the sin. Is it fair to say that, that there isn't a, the only source of anything good is God? Uh, and, and so anytime we see good things in anybody, whether it's uh, any form of love, any form of uh, courage or sacrifice or self-sacrifice or uh, uh, all every good virtue and every good thing can only have one source which is God and it seems that that would be God's love and grace working itself out in, in humanity uh, even though a person may be an unbeliever and may not know the source of every good thing, but every good thing does come from, from God. I mean, how could it be otherwise? Yeah, uh, and Hegel has this wonderful phrase about the divine cunning that is at work in history. And, you know, the, these unexpected moments of goodness or grace, you know, in, in unexpected places. I mean, this is the divine cunning in history. And the difference between believers and unbelievers at this point might be that believers are equipped to see it for what it is. At least a little better. A little better sometimes than the others. Uh, they, they have uh, the, the, uh, the key because they have Christ. And where, whenever it's Christ-like, we know that somehow this, I mean, you wouldn't preach it, but you, you could perceive it and kind of hope and pray that, you know, this seems to be some sort of work of God. Uh, and it could be uh, in ways that uh, don't make sense from more worldly ways of thinking. You know, somebody who thinks that uh, mercy toward a wrongdoer is preferable and more godlike than vengeance and exacting retribution. I mean, I, I would see that, and it happens sometimes, as a, as a Christ-like occurrence, whereas other people might feel that, no, uh, that's not what justice requires, no, that will uh, jeopardize our security somehow, you know, we, we can't take those kinds of risks, it's naive to uh, try to uh, implement uh, the concerns uh, and uh, values of the gospel in uh, uh, a hostile world. Well, uh, I mean, I think God and God's grace have a way of prevailing even when 
it doesn't always seem immediately to make rational sense. On page 154 in um, How to Read Karl Barth, you write, in Jesus Christ we see that God does not exist without humanity and that humanity does not exist without God. It's a great quote and I'd like to have you expound on it. Well, th th there is such a thing as a godless human being. That is, a human being who tries to live as if God does not exist. And in that sense, God is not real for them or you know, acknowledged uh, by them. But it's, it's one of the great quotations from uh, Bart, and it's very difficult to put into English. Uh, but if you're a godless human being, it would be godlosigkeit, uh, godlessness of the human being. And Bart says, there's no humanity-lessness of God, no mention losigkeit. Uh, so it, English uh, would require us to say something. Uh, there's no such a thing as a God without humanity. Even though there are human beings who are godless, there's no humanless God because God has made uh, the world and God has made humanity within it his own in the incarnation. So God has made the sufferings of the world and the sin of the world his own irrevocably in and with the incarnation as it reaches its fulfillment in the cross and then the resurrection. So God has committed himself to being God with us, and therefore there's no such thing as a God who does not have humanity by the grace of God. This is God's free decision, of course, but there's no godlessness, humanlessness of God. Just as there's no Father without the Son and the Holy Spirit, and no Holy Spirit without the Father and the Son, and so on. But that's true by nature. Yes. But this is true by grace. Yes. And so we can't think of God in any other way except as the God who has included us in himself. In Christ. Right, and that means uh, we can't think about God except in terms of the covenant as it reaches its fulfillment in uh, the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. I think Tom Torrance said something similar to that when he said in the mediation of Christ, when he said that God has bound himself to us in such a way he will never let us go. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.